0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. Are you worried about democracy? I have to confess I am a bit worried about democracy. That's why I listen to a wonderful podcast called Democracy Works. It's run by the fabulous people at the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. The podcast aims to rise above partisan politics and the daily news grind to take a broader look at issues impacting democracy. These are things we cannot ignore. You can go to www.democracyworkspodcast.com and subscribe in all kinds of ways. Or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other places. We really love this podcast at the NBN and so much so that we are going to provide you with a little taste of what you can get at Democracy Works. I hope you enjoy the following episode.
1: I had one man say to me, well, that's what his base wants and we have to put up with it. But what he really likes about Donald Trump is that he has signed huge tax cuts into law and he knows how to unleash business. So it's a marriage of convenience, but it's a very powerful marriage of convenience. And I don't think it's going to be easy to dislodge it. From
2: the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman.
3: And I'm Chris Beam.
4: And I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. With us on the show today, guys, we have Theda Scotchpole, uh, who is one of the the authors and and editors and contributors of a new book called Upending American Politics, Political Parties, Ideological Elites and Citizen Activists from the Tea Party to the Anti-Trump Resistance. We're going to talk with her about how grassroots organizing, and, and the role of, of organizations, both in the case of the Tea Party and in the anti-Trump resistance, have started to change some of the way that we we think about politics.
3: Yeah, I think that's why it makes sense for us to have this conversation. First of all, uh, Thea Scotchpole is uh, an eminently um, respected political scientist and has been for decades. And so any time she's involved in a project, it's worth paying attention to. But but in this case, I mean, her, her argument is that there's something distinctive going on in American politics right now with respect to protest. And so, you know, folks on the right will think about and talk about the Tea Party movement. Um, folks on the left will talk about the resistance movement. What uh, Theda and other folks are doing in this book are talking about how they are similar in terms of how they um, how they're formed, how they operate, and how they relate to politics broadly construed. Right and we haven't seen a lot of, a lot like that. We've had uh, multiple
2: conversations on this show about uh, dissent and protest uh, since 2016, but really nobody that we've spoken to yet has kind of tied it together with what went on in the Tea Party uh, following the uh, 2008 election. You know, in both cases, you have a situation where one party, comes out of a uh, presidential election year in control of all the national policymaking uh, institutions. So mm-hmm. Democrats had the Congress uh, while Obama was president for the first two years. Uh, and uh, similarly, uh, Trump had the Congress uh, for the first two years when, when he was elected. Mm-hmm. So in both cases, you get this kind of uprising and activism against a party in power, that I think in part reflects the fact that people, especially activists within each party, feel kind of shut out
3: and frustrated. And this is this is a way to express it. Well, and, and I'd say even more strongly, the sense of just uh, being enraged at the sense of being shut out and right. being enraged at the direction in which the country is going, right? I mean, there's this... Um, uh, you know, you, you saw it in the tea party, you see it in, in much of the resistance, just this, um, I am not going to stand by and let this happen to my country, that kind of, you know, you know, and obviously it takes a certain amount of that to get you out in the streets in the first place, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I think the book follows in a tradition that goes back
2: to to Tocqueville of how Americans like to organize themselves into groups Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, American political theory used to really be built upon theories of p- pluralism and group activism, and that's kind of dropped out a little bit. But uh, Scotchpole and others are really bringing them back in and, and recognizing that, uh, you know, Americans' proclivity to organize and form into some sort of entity with others that share similar interests and grievances is, uh, you know, a fact of American political life.
4: So I, th- right. I think, um, you know, Theta also points out that these – were not both in the Tea Party and the Resistance. These were not career organizers or activists or people that they'd been they'd been longtime voters yeah. and been civically engaged, but hadn't engaged at this level.
2: Yes, that that's right. And and actually, I think one of the more uh, interesting uh, contentions that uh, they make in this book, and I, I've seen Scotch Paul argue this uh, with some of her earlier work too. Is uh, you know the Tea Party? The Tea Party has a reputation of being something of a top-down kind of uh, astroturf. I think is the phrase it's mm-hmm. often used. And her argument is that's not really the case. I mean, it was very much uh, bottom-driven uh, by people who were upset with Obama for various things that the Democrats were doing. Uh, it happened to dovetail with an aggressive effort throughout the states by the. Koch brothers to influence state-level politics. And then they became involved in the Tea Party's provided funding, some
3: organization and that type of thing. But it does seem to me like there's this undercurrent, certainly in the Tea Party, but in some significant parts of the resistance as well, that the two-party system is, is somehow responsible for America being in the condition it is, and therefore... These organizations feel like, feel compelled to go outside the party institutions.
2: I I definitely think that's true of the Tea Party. Uh, I I don't really see that, particularly with the resistance movement, which was basically, you know, put together by middle class white women. You know, I don't really think that they were extremists outside the party. Uh, The Tea Party much more was an mm anti-establishment type mm -hmm. of thing. And of course, it really—you know—it really anticipated the Trump candidacy.
3: So we should bring it in. So, um, yeah, and she it, could talk about this much better. She, than a, us, a, so. Yeah, and and her um, her research is um, on the ground, talking to genuine human beings who are acting politically, and so it's absolutely worth worth hearing. And uh, and not to mention that she's an eminent scholar. So, yeah. uh, so let's uh, bring Jenna and, and Theda in and and get the interview.
4: This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Theta Scotchpole. Theta, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Works.
1: It's my pleasure. Uh,
4: so we are going to be talking today about a new book called Upending American Politics, of which you are one of the editors, along with Caroline Turvo. And, um, you know, over the past... 12 years or so, we've seen the formation of first the Tea Party and then the anti-Trump resistance. And uh, you argue that the the conventional ways of studying politics don't necessarily provide a full explanation of of what's going on uh, with with these these two movements. Uh, And and I thought a good place to start might be, you know, what what is it about these movements, what we've seen over the past decade or so that that might necessitate a new way of of studying or, or figuring out what's going on?
1: Well, you know, I I was surprised in the early Obama presidency by the sudden emergence of the Tea Party, and perhaps I wasn't surprised for exactly the same reason that a lot of other people were. Um, It didn't take um, – my research partner at that time was Vanessa Williamson who was a graduate student at that time, and now she's at the Brookings Institution. It didn't take us long to notice that something very uh, surprising in the early 21st century was happening in these early months of the Obama presidency, because not only did you see the usual suspect, national um, conservative advocacy groups and Fox News and the Republican Party leadership um, raising hell about him, But you also saw the formation of these local groups uh, all over the country. First, there were some demonstrations, but then there were hundreds of regularly meeting local groups of Tea Partiers. And that attracted our attention because we realized that since the 1960s, a lot of the organizing on the civic side in the United States had taken the form of national advocacy groups and maybe some local things, but usually not very connected into anything national. Then if you flash forward, Uh, Eight to ten years later, the same thing happened when Trump was elected. And in both cases, these were presidents that shocked the other side, elected at the same time as Congress was controlled by their own party. And um, the grassroots resistance emerged uh, even more quickly uh, after the Trump election, which was an even bigger shock to the people on the other side. Uh, and, and a lot of the resistance took the form of more than just the national marches that we saw. It took it took the form of, of regularly meeting local grassroots resistance groups led by volunteers, just like the Tea Parties before. So that just raises questions. How, are, how do we understand this? And the usual methods in the social sciences are to have national surveys or to um, maybe interview people in national organizations. Well neither of those are going to help you understand why local groups are forming so many places and who's leading them and what they're doing. There's really no substitute for going out and trying to contact those people and, and meet them and talk with them face-to-face and observe what they're doing.
4: Sure. And and I know that um, a lot of your work has has focused on the Tea Party and, and conservative organizing. So, so it's a pick up on on what you were just saying about the the local groups I mean what what was it do you think about that time about that the 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 election of of Barack Obama? you know what was it that changed that paradigm from a national model to as as you were you were suggesting that the more kind of network of of local groups?
1: well, uh, you know it's um it's a it's a good question and I'm not sure I have all the answers, but um It's in Americans' DNA to organize uh, when um, something strikes citizens as needing action. And both grassroots Tea Partiers and the grassroots resistors now, they faced a shocking event. And that that event is probably very important. I think social movement scholars often don't pay attention to events. But it's a pretty shocking thing in American democracy when a president who looks like they're going to end carry through radical changes, is elected at the same time as a Congress of their own party. And in the case of Barack Obama, of course, it was an African-American. He looked like he was coming to power at a moment of economic crisis that was going to lead to sweeping changes led by Democrats. And at that moment, a lot of grassroots conservatives just said to themselves, "Um, we can't depend on the Republican Party to do anything. We don't trust the Republican Party. Uh, Who's going to do it? We're going to do it. And so they started organizing face-to-face. Now, they had new internet tools, and I think internet tools can facilitate face-to-face organizing. In that case, it was Meetup, which was used by a lot of local Tea Party groups to get to know each other and organize. Facebook is the preferred method now among people. In both cases, these are middle-class people, often older Including in cases, many cases, retirees who have a little bit of time on their hands. But I think it's the it's the shock of the event the, of national significance, and then the idea that you can do something locally about it by organizing with your fellow spirits in your congressional district or your town or your state.
4: Sure, and, and I mean thinking about that, what what you were just saying about kind of that older. Demographic people who, who might be retired or or close to retired. I mean, is there also a sense of like that you know they might have known parents or or others that were involved in in civil society, more traditional civil society, a generation ago? As, as or you know, just or does that look different than you know people? organizing today that might not necessarily have that same frame of reference?
1: Well, I think there's something to that. I mean, uh, it, it's very interesting that a lot of the writing that we see about social movements is often, is it is it uh, uh, ethnic minorities? Is it people of color? Is it young people? And first of all, broad demographic categories don't actually organize. It's particular people. But both the Tea Party backed, then, and there are some tea parties that still meet and the grassroots resistance now are, are middle-class whites, uh, often older. And, uh, I would say disproportionately women in the resistance. It's, it's, it's 70 to 90% uh, women, um, in their forties, fifties and beyond, uh, in the tea party, it was more men and women often married couples together. But women were more present than you might think and more present than you would think for uh, conservatives because women tend to do things. And these are almost always on both sides people who've had experience organizing in their workplaces, their churches. Maybe they've been part of the local uh, political party or a local civic movement on the left or the right. And so, in a way, they do remember older fashioned ways of organizing, and then they will usually pick up some of the new internet techniques and kind of meld them together with what they know.
4: Sure, but the, you know, the, it's also I think worth worth noting as as you do in the book that the the groups are are not completely on their own. I mean, in the in the case of the the Tea Party in particular, there's also influence from. The Koch brothers and their their group, Americans for Prosperity. Um, can you talk about how they fit into
1: this this picture? Well, I want to take this in two stages. When we're talking about these grassroots, electorally sparked nationwide movements, the Tea Party and the Resistance, um, you have to think about them as a lot of local organizations and networks that vaguely know about each other, and have relationships to national organizations on their side of the spectrum that are mm, cheerleading for them. Um, Media centers do that to some degree. Uh, Fox or MSNBC, uh, national advocacy groups that are offering them money or training for particular projects or buses to come to uh, events like they did in the tea party. But it's not a top-down thing in either case. It's more a lot of top-level organizations that say, gosh, this is great, the Tea Party's great, or the resistance is great, and we're going to try to speak for it and egg it on and support it. And then local groups that, in many ways, pick or choose from among those national supporters who they'll take some advice or resources from. They don't take orders. And they didn't, that's very interesting to me that it's not one big organized thing. Right. But and on the that- right, you do have this added fact that uh, at the same time that the Tea Party emerged, there was a project well underway for quite a few years to build a national federated organization to the right of the Republican Party, the Koch Network and Americans for Prosperity. And so they were there in just about every state. And in some states, like North Carolina and Wisconsin, those Koch. Top-down, very well-funded, professionally run, but somewhat volunteer-based Coke organizations related very quickly to the grassroots Tea Parties. That doesn't mean they controlled them, but they allied with them.
4: Right. Although it wasn't always easy. I mean, you, you describe in the book as an uneasy marriage sometimes. Very between uneasy. These two factors. Can, can you talk more, more about that, why it, why it might be uneasy?
1: Well, I'll talk about it on both sides, but on the right, it's particularly striking. And the first chapter of the book is one where I try to talk about the dual roots of, I personally write about the dual roots of Republican Party extremism, and they really are quite different. I mean, the the Koch Network and other um, multimillionaires and billionaires have organized since 2004, really, with roots going back even further than that. To try to persuade Republican Party politicians in office or running for office that they should ruthlessly pursue more and more tax cuts that benefit the very, very rich, i.e. the people who are doing the organizing, and block any kind of environmental or global warming response through government, Uh, disable unions, labor unions, that's a top priority, and deregulate business at all levels. Well, that was well underway at the time that Barack Obama was elected. In some ways, Barack Obama was a repudiation of that agenda, which isn't very popular with most Americans. And the priorities of grassroots Tea Partiers were much more, we, we discovered when we went into the field and talked to them, they were angry about immigration. The Coke network likes immigration, makes labor cheaper. But the uh, grassroots Tea Partiers were angry that Hispanic immigrants in particular Uh, Central Americans and Mexicans were coming in large numbers and changing the cultural composition of the society that they thought they grew up in or that they did grow up in. So uh, it is an uneasy marriage. I mean, a lot of the popular energy that's pushed the Republican Party to the far right and and the core of Trump supporters, we now have national surveys that validate this, but it was obvious when we talked to them back in the 2011 the core of Trump supporters are, are people who are angry about immigration and about the changing social mores and generational understandings of American society. And, of course, it's changing racial and ethnic composition, whereas uh, the, the, the far right billionaires and millionaires, they're, they're happy enough to use the energy of those people to help elect Republicans. But when the Republicans are elected, they want them to cut taxes and block environmental regulations and deregulate business. And of course Donald Trump is the perfect synthesis of both of these strands. He does both.
4: Right. Yeah, and I think there's there's you maybe also a sense that each each of these kind of elements is working that they each see something that that they can get so they're willing to, you know, Put up with each other. Work, work with or, yeah, or at, at a minimum ignore what the others are doing just to, to kind of get what, what they're Well, it for.
1: creates some tensions, but I think not nearly as much tension as many media commentators mm-hmm. would like to believe. Uh, because, you know, they understand that the Republican Party is a mutually useful tool for uh, achieving what they're doing. And you notice that the Trump administration, since it came into office, has really had two kinds of extremism that it's pursuing. In the Justice Department and the Homeland Security and INS, they install the anti-immigrant forces that are really pretty extreme by any standard, but they thrill the Tea Party types at the base. I mean I keep in touch with a couple of Tea Partyers that I've interviewed um over the years and they're just absolutely thrilled by that aspect of Donald Trump's presidency. Meanwhile, if if you talk to um, members of the Koch network, and I have talked to a couple of, of um, very wealthy participants in that network, they'll turn their face, you know, they'll screw up their face and say, oh, it's ugly when you bring up immigration. Uh, I had one man say to me, well, that's what his base wants and we have to put up with it. But what he really likes about Donald Trump is that he has assigned huge tax cuts into law and he knows how to unleash business so it's a marriage of convenience but it's a very powerful marriage of convenience and i don't think it's going to be easy to dislodge it in any way and we haven't even mentioned the christian right which is a third partner in this overlaps with the grassroots tea party and what they want out of uh, the trump administration they're getting they want judges who will overturn abortion rights and gay rights
4: sure and there, there are also some other groups I think maybe in this this mix too you you talk about the the NRA the fraternal order of, of police, police the kind of law and order justice type of thing they also find something in in Donald Trump that they can think can can deliver or, or cater to what their interest to what their their agenda is
1: right and when we did the research for chapter four in the book where we went out and looked at well, most of the Trump campaigns in 2016, and that's true again in 2020, consist of these big rallies, these raucous rallies. And what's interesting about them is where they're located. They're located in swing states outside of the big cities in the sort of medium-sized areas and rural areas that where they're trying to pile up votes, very successfully, I might say. But um, when Donald Trump appears before actual groups – Ongoing organizations—they tend to be the gun rights groups, the NRA, the Christian Right conventions, or the Values Summit that the Christian Right holds every year. Or uh, we saw that he also visited Fraternal Order of Police lodges, where he would routinely give a speech saying uh, those black lives matter matters people are being backed by the Democrats to to attack our hero policeman and I'm with you. And we can we can be sure that they're doubling down on all of that. And that's very advantageous to Donald Trump because it gives him networks that reach into just about every community and every state that he needs to carry in the Electoral College. And and so to
4: to go back to that that uneasy marriage concept we, we were talking about earlier, what does that look like on the left? Or or is there are there any lesson that maybe the the resistance can take from the Tea Party about how to kind of work together even when the, the goals and priorities might not exactly be the same across the board?
1: The resistance and the Democrats face a harder set of tasks because the Tea Party, when it organized in, at the grassroots in 2009 and 2010, it formed probably about 1,500 groups spread all over the country. They didn't engage in a lot of voter registration efforts that we could observe at the time. And they didn't have to because they were older, conservative minded whites, angry at Democrats and an African American president. And they sort of knew that their friends and neighbors were going to vote because old people vote in this country. And conservatives vote very, very regularly. And Christian evangelical conservatives really vote regularly so it was more a matter of changing the agenda changing the public discussion creating a sense of urgency and fear which a lot of people that were there surrounding them of like-minded people already felt going into 2018 i think there was a big question there certainly was for our research group would these grassroots groups, mainly led in most places outside the big cities by librarians and healthcare workers, teachers, teachers all over the place, small business women in some cases, would they be able to persuade enough of their neighbors and friends to A, vote, and B, uh, vote for Democrats? even in places where the Democrats weren't going to win. So it mattered a lot that there were resistance groups all over the state. And in some cases, they seem to have improved the margins for Democrats. But they did it, our research shows, by turning out weekend after weekend and going door to door and knocking on a lot of doors and supporting Democratic candidates across the board. In 2018, you know, I think a lot of times the spotlight is on AOC or Ayanna Presley. You know, they were progressives who replaced other very liberal Democrats in very liberal Democratic areas. But the Democrats took the House of Representatives because a lot of fairly moderate Democrats were elected. Sometimes women and people of color. uh, I think that a lot of times people talk as if being a woman or a person of color is the same thing as being a left progressive Democrat. They are not the same. But I would say grassroots activists who are pretty progressive minded themselves turned out in large numbers to help elect Democrats who were often quite moderate and therefore appealing to a fairly large cross section of voters in their areas.
4: Right. And so as we we look ahead to November of this year, you know, do you think that regardless of, of who ends up winning the White House that that will see an opposition movement in the style of the the Tea Party or the anti-Trump resistance come back around again, and this will kind start to become the norm each each time the the party in control of the White House changes.
1: Well, you know, it's very very likely that the whoever wins the White House this time. Well, it, it, but let me put it this way: it's very likely that if a Democrat wins the White House this time. Uh, that the Democrats will hold the House but not take the Senate. And they certainly will not take um, most of the state legislatures and governorships. So in that scenario, I expect the right not to stand down in any way. We'll see the same kind of fierce um, and, and unremitting opposition that Barack Obama faced. The outcome might be a little different this time because Barack Obama and many Democrats in the Congress spent three years thinking they could work out compromises with people that weren't about to compromise with them. I think there'll be less delusion this time around. Even if it's President Biden, he's not going to imagine really that he'll get, uh, for example, 60 votes in the Senate for certain things. He'll face choices about having to go with 51 votes, but the Democrats have a big advantage. The taxes have been cut so deeply that anything that can be done through the budget process in Congress can be done with 51 votes. So if Democrats can either take 50 seats and the presidency or bring over one or two Republicans, they can probably do some things even through legislation. On the other hand, if Donald Trump is reelected, I don't expect American democracy to survive in anything like a recognizable form. I think it'll be a a very extreme semi-authoritarian situation. And what you'll see is you'll begin to see liberal states and regions pulling away. You already see that now in California. You see California trying to be the People's Republic of California. And I think you'll see more of that. Some social movements have cut across parties, even in fairly polarized periods, and have gained a certain amount of leverage by playing them against each other. Other movements have been at the edges of parties and have ended up melding with them. And one of the big questions in the research that we begin to tackle but can't fully tackle in upending American politics is how these two widespread grassroots uh, citizen organizing movements have changed the two political parties. Uh, And I do think that they have uh, in some ways, in parallel ways. If you go now to many parts of the country, which I do, I regularly visit places in North Carolina, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, you will see that the Republican party at the county level or the grassroots level has literally been taken over by Tea Party, former Tea Partiers in many cases. And in some cases, tea parties are still meeting, but they sort of have this uneasy overlap with the Republicans. And even at the state level, where party leaders tend to be hold their noses about grassroots tea partiers, they think they're a little bit uncouth, and they don't necessarily care for their anti-immigrant and open racial language. They're incorporated that process is now beginning to happen uh uh, for democrats and the chapter in the book on pennsylvania looks at that very closely and looks at the beginning stages of working out relationships between these independent resistance groups they almost always organize independently of the political party but then they start running for party offices they start supporting party candidates and that in some places develops a sort of cooperative relationship or even a takeover. In other places, there's a standoff. And I just think that's going to play out the way it has at times before in American history. You could say that the abolitionist movement at the grassroots eventually worked out that kind of relationship with the Republican Party leading into the Civil War. The labor movement in the 1930s worked out that kind of relationship that was partly an institutional overlap with the Democratic Party by the post-war period. So we are probably seeing another round of some of these kinds of things. It's just that these groups are self-organized and are linked together by a kind of media identity in a highly polarized uh, national partisan atmosphere. A lot of times, if you visit a local area, the local Tea Party people will either not know Who the resistors are, or they know about them only because they counter-demonstrate the way they just have in North Carolina, where the Tea Party turned out against a pro-impeachment protest on the other side. They don't know them personally. They just... So that tells you something and that can happen even in very small communities. These are movements at the edges of their political parties respectively and the political parties are very very polarized from each other.
4: Sure. Well, it'll be interesting to see uh what happens in the the rest of 2020 and beyond. But uh Theta thank you for putting this this volume together and bringing all of these different perspectives together and for taking the time to talk with us
1: today. It's my pleasure and I want you to keep in mind that there's a whole team of people behind this book, including undergraduate students who wrote senior theses, Caroline Turvos was one on North Carolina, and graduate students. So this is a team effort. We all work together and that's what you have to do if you're actually going to go out and talk to people as opposed to sit in front of a computer screen.
3: As advertised, right? I think I t- said it's it's distinctively measured and direct, which is a real breath of fresh air in the academy. Anyway, that's enough of that <laughs> sermon. But um, the one thing, uh, Michael, that I wanted to mention is this idea of the distinction she's drawing between the Republican and the Democratic Party, right? And it's it's a, um, I'm trying to remember the author, but the, the book is called Asymmetric, Asymmetric Politics. Politics. Yeah. Matt Grossman and David Hopkins. Hopkins. Yeah. Uh, are the authors, and, and, and their argument is that there's something fundamentally different. Between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party is, as kind of the the standard theory goes, this uh, a collection of co- interests. Yeah, and a collection of coalitions, right? All representing no, a coalition of interests. All right, Okay. All representing their um, objectives, right? So you have the African Americans, you have the uh, you know LGBTQ, you have uh, the unions, you have all these groups that all want what they want, and they're growing joining in coalition to get it. And then you have the Republicans who largely uh, ignore interest and are more oriented and more united around their ideology. This is the way we want the world to be. This is what we think is wrong. And this is what we want to happen to. I mean, the way you
2: frame it there, I'm thinking that, you know, the the sort of free market Free market economics and politics promoted by the Republican Party and and the Koch brothers, for example, is very much of benefit to the interests that promote it. Sure, but but it also it, even it though they would dispute
3: that, but yeah,
2: well, or at least they'd say that's not why we do it, right? But it, but it, it, it's always presented in a more sort of ideological language. I mean, I think the a point that that she was making is that there's an incoherence now to the ideology of the Republican Party. But I think it's also the fact that this is what a coalition of interests can do. Because, you know, for people like the Koch brothers, you know, they they don't particularly care about
3: anti-abortion policies and church and state issues, but but they just don't really care. If you want to be successful in American politics, you have to make coalitions with people with whom you disagree about a lot of things, right? And you just decide, well, this is These disagreements are more significant than these disagreements. The only difference is that right now with Donald Trump, you just have all those disagreements, either A, sufficiently served by the president's action, or B, um, there's such an ideological fear and loathing of the Democrats that there is no argument with anything that Donald Trump says within the Republican Party. One of the really nice
2: things about this book is it's, Insistence on putting American national politics in a federalist perspective, and she does this in in multiple ways. Uh, you know, picking up on some things that we've talked about in past podcasts—a way that Republicans very wisely focused on the states, uh, while they were out of while they were largely out of political power, mm-hmm. they were able to take over state legislatures. Uh, they were able to uh, dominate the redistricting process. Uh, they were able to impose voting. Uh, voting rules at disadvantage democratic voters and they built their own bench in a way that the democrats did not exactly yeah and, and that the the tea party kind of came into this environment mm-hmm. and and then was connected right. with for example with the uh, with uh, the coke brothers in particular who are you know throughout the states and you can't really you know Sometimes we should do a show on Quite how effective <laughs> they have been in influencing state policy. I'm thinking about Alec, yeah, which Alec, is the, the legislative big, yeah, the exchange group, and then also. Uh, also the Koch brothers and some of these other organizations. Uh, But what she's also picking up now, and I remember we talked about this uh, with uh, the Pennsylvania Attorney General a little bit, uh, Josh Shapiro, uh, you know, the the state governments as a source of resistance themselves.
3: But, But your point, and I think it's right, is that this is precisely how... California probably views a lot of the actions of the Trump administration in terms of rolling back of these environmental policies, right? Yeah, they're increasingly going to try to do things themselves. Or you know, and, or, or just and what to- are they? The fifth largest economy in the world. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, they have the ability to do that, and and um, it is it is, and I think she's right that you already see that. But if if and when Trump is reelected, you're going to see much more of that, and and it is it is um, a state nullification strategy. Only this point, this time on the left, which I just think is remarkable, right? I mean, yeah. And mm-hmm. also, um, it is you know just almost inevitable in a federal system right i mean the states do have power they have independent power and if they don't like where the national government is going they're going to try to use what power they have to take themselves out of that equation right, right? and remember that from Just the census raw numbers
2: and everything else what we're going to have is more and more concentration of population in a few states right those states are going to be more and more progressive and liberal uh as the country uh, very potentially, at least in some of its institutions, moves more and more to the right. And so that I think that's a dynamic you're gonna you're really gonna see well, in what's, the future. Well, Whether Trump wins or not. But <laughs> while we're talking about sort of these more permanent changes to politics or or to American democracy, you know, I think one of the takeaways from this book is that this sort of citizen activism is here to stay too. Yes. That we've now seen it on both sides. And the parties on both sides, I mean party regular so to speak, candidates, uh, also see it. Because both Republicans in both Republicans after the Tea Party and Democrats after the resistance have really gained electoral advantage from these groups. And so I would not expect – you know, I, I I agreed with what she was saying, and, and maybe this was from Dana Fisher too, so I'm not exactly sure where I heard it, that we would expect – yeah, like uh, with the Women's March, so we would expect maybe less activism right now since the Democrats took the House and they're going into the next well, campaign. And the
3: next election. And is I think there's something to animals. that. I mean, a
2: lot of the resistance was about mobilizing for 2018, and mm-hmm. the fact is they
3: did it quite effectively. Right. Right. The other, you know, the other only other thing I would want to say is that you can argue, and I think I would argue that there was a. A denigration of the other side on the part of both of these protest movements. However, it's also the case that this is exactly how politics is supposed to work, where you see something that that spurs you to action, and you work in coalition with um, other people who are like-minded and similarly passionate, and you use your newfound power to change society. And there's so as long as you keep that peaceful. And reasonably civil, that's good for democracy. Um, again, uh, this book is really worth reading. Anything that Theda Scotchville is involved with is worth your attention, uh, and this is no different. We were very fortunate to have her. And, uh, and kudos to her and all the uh, her co-, uh, co editor and all the authors in the book. Agreed. All right. Yep. So uh, for Democracy Works, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening.
4: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our engineer, and our editors are Mark Stitzer and Chris Kugler. Additional support comes from Ann Danahay, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For more information on this episode and detailed show notes, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.